Welcome to Sliceonomics. For today's episode, we're talking with Nick Timoros, who's the chief economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal. If you follow the Fed at all, you know about Nick. He is at every meeting, and he wrote a book called Trillion Dollar Triage about the Federal Reserve's response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Nick is a wealth of knowledge about the Fed, but also knows about so many other aspects of the economy. We talked about Nick's journey into media, what he sees going into 2024, and what he thinks the Federal Reserve will do next. I hope that you enjoyed the episode today, and if you did, go ahead and hit like, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Hey, Nick. Thanks so much for joining us today. Kyla, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I want to first start out with talking about your journey to becoming the chief economics correspondent at the Wall Street Journal, a position that you've held since 2017. What did that journey look like, and how has the media landscape evolved since you started? Yeah, I was I was very lucky. Um, I got an internship at the Wall Street Journal right out of college. Uh, it was my third try. I had been I had applied twice and had not heard back or had interviewed but not gotten anything. Um, and so I landed there right out of undergraduate, and uh, I stayed. And so I've been there ever since. Now I've had different jobs there, and it's a pretty meritocratic place. So they throw you in the deep deep end, and if you can swim, you can stay. So that's that's pretty much what happened. Uh, before covering the Fed, in 2017, I started covering the Fed. Before that, I covered the 2008 presidential campaign, the housing finance industry, and the, the housing kind of the uh, recovery from the wreckage after 2009. Um, and then I moved to Washington about nine years ago, covered the Treasury Department, economics more broadly, and then the Fed. Yeah, and it's been a very interesting time to cover yeah, the sure Fed. Has. Yeah. yeah, sure yeah. has. How have you noticed Fed coverage change? Because I feel like the Fed wasn't something that everybody really paid that close attention to in the 2010s because it was kind of like, oh, they'll just keep rates the same. But now it's, it's well, so dynamic. I think I think starting with quantitative easing, the bond purchases or QE, uh, after the financial crisis, there was a lot more interest in the Fed because – it became the proverbial only game in town for economic demand management, right? And so there was more interest. They were doing these novel policies. And then it probably quieted down a little bit in the middle of the last decade. Um, and then, you know, we went into the pandemic or even before the pandemic when the president, uh, you know, President Trump was attacking the Fed. There was a little bit more interest in the Fed at that point. Um, and certainly since, you know, the pandemic, the inflation of the last two years, huge interest in the Fed. Yeah. And you've been called the Fed Whisperer before. Do you yeah. align with that title? Uh, you know, I don't love it, but yeah. people use it, so you kind of got to go with it. Yeah. Do you feel like people understand what the Fed is trying to do? I know you like you were on CNBC yesterday talking about like we don't have the right data to determine. You know, the Fed is probably not going to raise rates anymore, right? right? And so, do you feel like people understand what the Fed is trying to accomplish, or is there a gap between that? I, I mean, there's there's a huge distribution of sort of familiarity. Uh, so you have sort of the the Fed watchers on Wall Street who who are mostly worked at the Fed before they went to Wall Street, and of course they get the Fed. They kind of speak the Fed. But then there's this whole different audience of people out there who have maybe accrued uh, or just they haven't spent that much time understanding the Fed. And so I think that's one of the reasons why there's been a lot of attention on Fed reporting for the last few years is people really want to understand the place. And frankly, sometimes there's information out there about the Fed that just isn't quite right. Mm -hmm. People think the Fed is, is behaving in a way that is sort of at odds with how they actually behave. And so that's maybe where there's an opportunity to come in and explain to people, 
you know, what's happening in the central bank and in monetary policy right now. Yeah. And how do you, do you think like publishing and the newspaper is the best way to do that? Or do you feel like Twitter has been really useful for you to do that? Twitter is an interesting place because it's changing. What it is is constantly changing. I kind of use it sort of as a place to, uh, you know, you showcase your work, but you're also kind of putting ideas out there to see, um, you know, sometimes it's like a soundboard or a whiteboard for different ideas as I'm developing a story or trying to understand maybe where to take the next story. Yeah. Do you feel like the feedback that you get is good? I don't really pay attention to the feedback okay. very much. I mean, it's 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 kind of all over the place. If you're talking just about like Twitter, I, I think, you know, Twitter's not real life. So I try to sort of, you're using it to grow and build an audience, yeah. share your work. Um, but a lot of times what I find on Twitter, for example, is people just don't read the story. And so a lot of the comments are asking questions that are answered in the story. So, you know, read the story, pay, yeah. pay for the subscription. It's really valuable information. Yeah. And you, in your book too, you know, like I, going back to the point about the Fed and what they've accomplished, like in the book, that trillion dollar triage, you talked about like the Fed was able to to get us out of this pandemic situation. Like they were able to essentially save the economy without getting us into a recession. And I feel like a lot of people would be like, oh, we're in a recession, but they won't do the extra work to figure out that we're not in a recession, right? Well, one of the challenges I think that they face and sometimes that you face in writing about the Fed, you're dealing with counterfactuals a lot, right? Mm -hmm. Trade-offs. What, what would have happened if they had done something different from what they did, right? And you saw this after the financial crisis, you know, before Lehman failed, the conventional wisdom was to let Lehman fail. After Lehman failed, everybody said that was terrible. You shouldn't have let Lehman fail because we could see what happened after Lehman failed. You, you almost had the system go down the tubes. So you're dealing a lot with counterfactuals and the what if problem. Well, what if they hadn't you know, promised to buy ETFs on March 23rd, 2020, uh, which at the time seemed like a really controversial decision. Nobody really talks about it now because you know, the problems we've been dealing with for the last two years are you know, too much inflation, uh, too much demand, insufficient supply, and not sort of the fear really in 2020 was that you were going to lose entire companies, businesses, industries would shrink. And so the Fed and the fiscal authorities were trying to preserve the supply side of the economy, right? You heard that analogy about building a bridge to whenever the pandemic's done. We didn't, you know, we didn't know how long it was going to take to get out of the pandemic. So you didn't know how long that bridge was going to have to be. But if you had stood by and just said, well, you know, this is the business cycle, uh, pandemic comes and you got to just let the air airlines go down, hmm. there's a chance you would have really scarred the economy a lot more. And perhaps the inflation that we saw on the other end of it would have been even worse. Yeah. And do you feel, and not to ask sort of the same question, but like, do you feel like people understand that, like that the Fed's response to the pandemic was really strong, the fiscal response was really strong, but people still feel pretty bad about the economy? Yeah, I'm not sure how well understood what happened in 2020 is. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book. Yeah. You know, when I did it, we it was, you know, it was early 2021. We hadn't had the inflation episode yet. Um, so things obviously look different now. But it was sort of to, you know, say, wait a minute, what happened in 2020 was significant. You had a really massive response from the fiscal authorities, from the monetary policy authority. So, um, you know, People are unhappy with the economy because we went through a huge increase in the price level, right? So now I'm, you know, inflation has been slowing. And every month when the CPI or the PCE numbers come out, the 
you know, the official government inflation measures come out every month and we dutifully write a story about what the latest signals are. And so when I say, uh, as we've been saying really since the June report, that inflation slowed, uh, people don't like to hear that because they see that prices have increased terrifically over the previous 30 months or the previous 20 months. And so they're saying, how can you say inflation slowing? You know, the price of the sandwich that I'm paying uh, at the deli, you know, downstairs um, from my office is, you know, $5 more than it was. And prices are not probably going back to where they were in 2020, even if you just assume sort of a moderate 2% inflation rate. So we've had a big increase in the price level and people are upset about that. And I imagine we'll continue to be until we have a few more years, hopefully, of more benign inflation where you sort of, you know, you kind of get, uh, you get, you get past it, but mm -hmm. we'll see. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of people want deflation, which is they do. problematic. They do. Um, what's, what's up with deflation? Like, why yeah. is that something to So, avoid? I mean, deflation is declining prices, right? And it's a state of affairs that central bankers really, really don't want to be in. I mean, they almost view deflation as worse than inflation, because if you think prices are going to be lower tomorrow, why would you spend today? I'll just buy that, that, you know, that sofa, uh, the house, the car later. And so you get into a, a pretty vicious cycle that can be hard to get out of. Um, and so, you know, deflation would mean uh, you might lose your job. You'll get a wage cut, right? That, you know, people don't want that. I think right now people assume that if they're getting a wage increase, it's because they're a really hard worker and they're yep. doing a good job. But if the price of something's going up, you know, it's because the government policy screwed me over or these greedy corporates are taking advantage of me. And so it's difficult. You know, I think the other um, challenge, which we, we talked about a little bit last week on a, on a panel, yeah. is, you know, if you look at the housing market, uh, yeah, inflation's down, but home prices went up 20, 30 percent in my market. And it, interest rates, mortgage rates went from 3 percent to they were 8 percent last month. Now they're down to the high sevens. So I feel like a chump if I don't have a house and am I ever going to be able to move out of my parents' house or, uh, you know, leave my roommate and move into my own place. We've had a huge cost in home prices and that doesn't seem likely to change anytime soon. Especially with mortgage rates being so high, right? And that's part of the Fed raising rates. Do you think if the Fed begins to cut rates, that'll make the housing crisis a little bit more palatable? I don't know. I mean, I have a real question right now. If mortgage rates were to come down, so let's say to 6%, you know, a year ago, people were saying 6% is such a high rate. Yeah. If you're in the market right now uh, and you're you're looking at a 6% rate, you might say, wow, well, that's great. I thought I was looking at 7 or 7.5%. So there's a chance that, you know, to some extent, what happened is uh, a lot of inventories off the market right now. People aren't going to move if there's this huge increase in affordability, even if you don't have a mortgage, you know, we talk about the lock-in effect. People who have mortgages at 3%, they're not going to want to give up that mortgage. But even people who don't have a mortgage, they've paid off the mortgage, where are they going to move to? They don't want to be homeless. It's easy for them to sell their house, but it's going to be expensive for them to, to trade up into the next property. So, uh, you know, I think the question here is if mortgage rates were to come down, would it simply allow prices to go back up? What the Fed has done by raising interest rates, whether it's in the housing market or the car market or the grocery aisle, is to some extent they're taking that purchasing. It's a change in the purchasing power. 
and you're taking away the ability of the seller to grab higher prices in an environment of higher demand, mm -hmm. right, by slowing down demand. So one question I have is if we really do have these sort of structural forces that are going to continue to sustain stronger demand for housing, right, the, the, the millennials are growing into kind of peak home buying years here, you could be in a situation still where rates come down, but it doesn't actually change the affordability situation terribly much because prices might go back up. Yeah, and that's a structural issue. Like the Fed totally. can't go out there. We haven't built enough yeah. housing in the right places. You know, the the places where people want to live, we just haven't built enough homes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting too with you know Bidenomics, they've really focused on manufacturing, like the Chips Act, the IRA, the IIGA. But I think it's like 24% of Americans are feeling better off. Like everybody feels really bad under right. Bidenomics. So do you think that fiscal policy has made the right decisions? Or do you think that they should have focused on other aspects of the economy? You know, that that's probably for someone who works in the opinion side of the house to answer. <laughs> yeah. If, the, yeah, if, that is if, if, if elected officials have, have focused on the right things. I mean, what Biden has done here is he's basically made a gamble in the ability to boost the productive capacity of the economy, right? And when we saw the the increase in long-term borrowing costs, you know, this bond sell-off that we had August, September, yeah. October, you started to hear more worries about the sustainability of U.S. debt, right? Mm -hmm. There was this equation, R versus G, interest rates and growth, right? And when interest rates were lower than growth, the idea was, well, you could borrow more. But if now the borrowing cost for the U.S. government debt is going to rise above the uh, the rate at which the economy grows, the, the G in that equation, you run into worries about debt sustainability. So what the Biden administration, I think, is you know is trying to do here is to increase the capacity of the economy to produce goods and services and to target it into certain areas where, for national security reasons or you know uh, climate change reasons, they really want to make a, a difference. And we're going to see if if that happens in the same way that Donald Trump cut taxes. You know, lowered taxes to boost growth. That was a gamble because maybe you're not going to get the growth dividend that you were looking for, but you have higher debt now because you ran deficits up with these tax cuts. And there's a narrative too that fiscal policy and Biden investing in manufacturing to expand the economy has directly worked against the Federal Reserve's goals at fighting inflation. Do you feel like the Fed is, I mean, Jerome Powell has called the debt path unsustainable. Yeah. How do you think those two can work together or do you think they should? Or, well, yeah. you know, yeah, at a certain point, if the Fed is, is trying to slow down demand and the fiscal authorities, the White House, Congress are doing things to try to stimulate demand, then they're at cross purposes. I think the question you, you, you know, you'd, you'd want to pose is, uh, how stimulative actually have the Biden sort of manufacturing investment policies been? They're obviously stimulating production in, you know, if you're if you are a builder of hospitals, highways, uh, you know, green uh, green investment, then yes, you're stimulating those things. But it's not clear to me how much that actually influences uh, sort of the net fiscal impulse across the economy. To the extent that it's adding to the fiscal impulse, you're you're providing more stimulus then yes, it is in some ways competing uh, with the Fed. Now, I think what the Biden White House would probably say is, well, if you're increasing the capacity of the economy to produce goods and services, hmm. then that's actually complementing the Fed. Yeah. You're, giving, you're giving supply a chance to improve here. And so, you know, the Fed can really control demand. Mm -hmm. it's, the, uh, it's the fiscal authority that can do more to, to try to build more homes or bridges or, you know, make productive investments in the economy. Yeah, and that's something with the Fed's toolkit. 
where it is sort of limited, like raising it's a rates. Blunt, it's a blunt object, right? Do you feel like, well, I don't want to ask you what you feel because I don't want to have to have, uh, be in the opinion section, but um, Thank you. yeah, like, is there a way that the Federal Reserve can do more things beyond, you know, coming out and speaking? Like, it seems like they are very hands tied behind their back doing what they can. I mean, there are people who think that Powell, that, they, you know, they would like to see Jay Powell speak out more and say, Congress, you got to get your act together on, you know, running 6% peacetime deficits. He has not been willing to do that. Uh, he does make these kind of broad platitudes, and he's been doing it since the day he became Fed chair in 2018, that, you know, in the long run, the debt isn't sustainable. Um, I think the reason Powell doesn't get more pointed on this is that he's trying to preserve his freedom of movement on monetary policy. He doesn't want Congress to come in and tell him what to do with interest rates, so he's basically not going to tell them what to do with fiscal policy. Now, you know, Alan Greenspan, when he was Fed chair, he took a different view. He went in 1989 and told Congress, we can get inflation down faster if you bring down deficits. And he went down to Little Rock, Arkansas in 1992 after Bill Clinton was elected president and tried to convince them to cut, uh, to cut the deficit and that you could bring down interest rates, you could bring down market rates faster. And Clinton listened to him. But, you know, Powell has sort of taken a different view. Um, the exception to that was during the pandemic. In 2020, he went in and said, you know, spend more. This is the time to use the great fiscal uh, power of this country to, to help people in need. And I think there may have been a little bit of regret over doing that because, you know, Congress really listened to him and then some, right? We had the CARES Act, which everybody, I think, broadly supported in March of 2020. But then you had $900 billion uh, at the end of 2020 and then the $1.9 trillion from Biden. And I think uh, there, there are probably people who think we didn't need all of that. And so Powell you know, he, he kind of owns some of that just by having encouraged it. Yeah. And there, we're going into an election year where Powell, that's probably tenuous for him. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you think is going to happen there? Like, will the Fed be pulled in either direction? Do you think that'll become something that comes up in these presidential debates, what monetary policy should do? Yeah, I mean, this isn't a controversial view. It's going to make things more difficult for the Fed. Uh, they are going to try as best they can to tune it out, to say that it's not a focus uh, and, you know, at a certain level, that's all they can do. Because if you try to sort of think of the second derivative, well, if we do this, then it causes that, you, you, you drive yourself crazy, right? So Powell's going to come in and say he just has to do what's best for the economy. But there will be people who will want him to make sort of more of a calculated political decision to think, well, what's in the best interest of the country in the short run is a certain political outcome that could influence the economy in the long run. Powell won't do that. Uh, I, I don't think, but it does raise sort of the the atmospherics, the dramatics around Fed decisions next year. Because look, if they're done raising interest rates, the focus is going to be on when to cut. And the Fed doesn't love to be making policy decisions, policy changes, if they can avoid it before an election. Yeah. Based on what you're seeing in the data, do you think they're done raising rates? Yeah, I, I don't see what would cause you to raise interest rates again at this point, right? You would need, um, you know, so we wrote this week after the um, after the October inflation numbers came out that the Fed is likely done because you've now had several more benign core inflation uh, readings of underlying inflation. What would you need to raise rates at this point? You know, I'm thinking of something like an adverse supply shock, another mm -hmm. big increase in commodity prices, or just several months of the data going in the wrong way, labor markets getting tighter, wages going up, uh, 
uh, inflation going back up. And you wouldn't need it just one month. You would need to see sort of several months of that. So you're talking about, you know, January or February before you could come to a view that, oh, actually, the last rate increase was not in July. We need to go again. But almost everything you see right now in the data, the anecdote, you know, the Walmart earnings call, uh, talking about slower consumer demand, prices going down on the grocery aisle, uh, and in general merchandise, that is just not consistent with needing to raise rates from here. Yeah. And I'm curious from a journalist perspective, you know, there's so many economic data points, there's so much noise out there. How do you determine what to focus on and what's the signal for you? It's, a, it's impossible to know at any given moment, you know, which, which of the data point is going to be the one that we look back on and say, oh, aha, we should have known it at this point. So, you know, I, we're watching, we're talking to other economists, private sector economists, uh, price setters, wage setters, you know, uh, I used to cover the housing market. And so I was just constantly talking to real estate agents in different yeah. markets to try to figure out, you know, have we hit a bottom? This was in 2012 when there was a view that housing in America would never recover. There were all these foreclosed homes. There was this shadow inventory being held off the market by banks that was just never going to, you know, we we're never going to see a recovery. So you just get out and talk to people on the ground about what they're seeing. Now, with, with things like inflation and employment, it's a little bit different. Uh, so you are looking at the official figures more, reading earnings calls, um, and you're talking to people who have had keen insights in the past, you know, what are you seeing right now? What worries you right now? Where do you think things are going to go? Yeah. And do you feel, <laughs> this is something I've just noticed from looking back on old data points. Like I haven't been around the markets that long, but it does seem like things are very cyclical. Like things in the past are relatively similar to things in the present. Is that what you've noticed? Yeah. It, I think it's hard to figure out sort of, people talk about this, oh, you know, we're going to have a new normal now. Yeah. And so it's always sort of hard to sort out how much of this is cyclical versus some structural change, right? The, the 2010s, we ended up having, I think, interest rates much lower for much longer than almost anybody expected. Yeah. So you began to say, well, maybe there is something structural. Now you look back and you say, well, we just had a big debt overhang and we had to work it off. Maybe the same thing has happened sort of in the other direction now. We had a huge increase in household net worth. Uh, whether it's excess savings or just the fact that your 401k and your home is val much more valuable than it was three years ago. And so people feel like they can take that trip to Europe and spend that, you know, uh, buy something maybe they wouldn't have before. And are we going to just, is it going to take a little while to work that off? Yeah. And this will be my final question, but I'm just curious, and it's rather broad. Uh, what's the most interesting thing that you're looking at right now? I feel like you look at so many different things. Like you're tweeting about the all these most wild things. Interesting thing that yeah. I'm looking at. Like, is it the housing market? Is it the labor market? Like, where are you? What are you eyeing? Um, that's a great question, Kyla. I wish I had had more time to think about Sorry. it. No. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think the question, I think the big question is how much of the behavior that we saw after the pandemic that we thought was going to create some break from the past is actually going to be there. So you talk, you hear a lot about these sort of structural shifts. We're moving into a world of, if not higher inflation, higher inflation volatility, the unwind of globalization, the aging mm -hmm. of the population. Uh, this is going to create more, you know, suppliers are going to want or businesses are going to want to have multiple suppliers. So that's going to add cost into everything. And so we're going to live with a higher inflation world than we're used to. Um, and then there are other people who say, no, we're kind of going through some 
some very interesting changes because of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine. But when this is all done, the next decade is going to look a lot more like the last one. Hmm. And, you know, we won't know it for another uh, several more years, probably. But I think that's one of the more interesting sort of debates happening right now, because it has huge implications for uh, for investing, for asset asset prices, for volatility. I mean, we saw a huge run up in uh, in bond yields in October, September, October, and now we've retraced a lot of that. So did we finally, you know, did, did investors conclude that sort of the neutral interest rate uh, was higher and then decide, well, maybe it's not. I mean, this, there's some interesting shifts going on here. Yeah. And will they remain is sort of what you're curious about. Yeah. You know, the Fed, let's say the Fed succeeds in getting inflation down to 2%-ish, 2.5%, give or take, right? That, you know, their target is 2%. They won't declare victory at 2.5%. But, you know, 2.5% is not the 4.5% that people yeah. are worrying about. But when we get back there, uh, do we stay there and sort of have these longer, uh, I won't call them boring expansions, but, you know, we had a, a long expansion after 2008. We had a long expansion after 1990. Or do we go back to a period where there's more volatility in the business cycle? And so we have sort of these these uh, shorter uh, business cycles. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Nick. This Thank has you, been Kyla. wonderful. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, thanks.